and you're holy and mighty and you're good to us, Lord. Your goodness runs deep. Your grace runs deep. Lord, our, our request this morning is just a simple one. It's that you would, you would just simply help us to believe the gospel. Just help us to believe that. Whether it's, it's for the very first time, Lord, of coming to faith for you, uh, to you, or whether it's we've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, Lord, just help us this morning to believe the truth of the gospel, that we would believe in the free gift of grace that you offer us. And help us to live every moment of this life as if it were true. God, give me just just clarity of thought. Give me the words to speak this morning. Give us hearts that would receive it. And help us to do just that. Help us to live like it's true, Lord. And pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. You guys can all have a seat. It's good to see you all here this morning. It's my first time back here in a little while, and can I just say this place is looking good. I was, I was pumped walking through the doors this morning. We're going to be in Romans 1 again this week. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 17, so go ahead and turn there with me if you would. I'm going to get going here because we have, we have a lot to say this morning. So verses 8 to 17, I'll read the text. Starting in verse 8 here, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you just as I have had amongst the rest of the Gentiles. For I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, or non-Greeks, it may say, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Um, How many of you have ever had a near-death experience? Has that ever happened to you? Something has happened and uh, you, you came so, so, so close to that, to that event going the other way that you quite literally just barely avoided death in that moment. It's a sobering thing to have happen to you and a sobering thing to think about. I remember uh, one time a few years ago, um, just driving to church on a Sunday morning. And I had me and my wife and my young toddler son and a best friend in the car with me. Uh, we're on the freeway in downtown Columbus, and um, without going into all, all the detail, we come up on just this crazy fluke situation uh, where we're about two seconds away from having a semi-truck just absolute, 
absolutely obliterate us from the back of the vehicle. Life or death in a moment. I think about another time when I was just, I was just walking around on a, on a ball diamond, something I've done hundreds of times in my life, only this time not paying attention the way that I should be during batting practice and having a baseball fly past me at about 90 miles an hour just a few inches behind the back of my head. Think about my dad who's worked as a, as a police officer for all about a couple months of my life who every day he's at the risk of something going terribly wrong at work that could transpire at, at any moment's notice. I'm sure others in the room this morning, they've had uh, similar experiences or can share similar sentiments as these, but if we're, if we're really honest, it's not just these fluky kind of happenstance things that only happen a few times in life. In fact, we, we come face to face with death far more often than we realize. These specific moments, they, they stick out to us because they're rare occurrences and they're not things that, that typically happen. They seem to be a bit fluky and out of the normal routines of life, and so they're, they're kind of shocking to us and they're sobering in that regard. But friends, at the risk of being overly dramatic, can we not say that as mortal human beings, death is always creeping around the corner of life? We're never guaranteed the next day, the next hour, the next minute for that matter. And some of us may be more, more aware or attuned than others of the mortality that we all possess. Life has a way of doing that to you in different ways, but it, it doesn't negate the fact that death is always lurking and is always on its way to every single one of us at our sovereignly appointed time and place. Why is this so important? Why is it, why is it important to contemplate this? It's because as Christians, we don't, we don't just believe in life and death. <laughs> as Christians, we, we know there's more to it than that. We don't just believe in life and death. We think there's life and life and death and death. In other words, there's, there's another kind of life and another kind of death that are both equally real realities, only they're not temporary ones, they're eternal ones. And the only difference is that while all of us get a life and a death here, we only get one of the two afterward. And we think there's a day coming, an event coming in, in real space, time, and history. It, it's on the horizon where Jesus Christ comes back and that same event is going to mean eternal life for some and eternal death for others. It will mean either life more full and real and and glorious than anything we've ever imagined here and now, or death more wicked and treacherous than anything we could ever fathom or make up. Have you thought about this? Have you stopped to contemplate this reality of what will happen to you when you die? When you breathe your last breath here, what will happen to you what will that moment be like for you? And here's why it matters for us this morning specifically. It's that this reality is inherent to the truth of the gospel. And how you choose to respond to the message of the gospel is what will determine which reality you experience on that coming day. I don't know how else to say it this morning, friends. The Bible says that those who understand that message who comprehend that message and believe it with their soul, they will have this eternal life that the Bible speaks about. 
But all those who don't ever come to understand it and don't ever come to believe it, only death. There's nothing less at stake in the gospel than life and death. And as we come to Romans 1 this morning, Paul is very simply going to begin explaining the ins and the outs of what that gospel message is. By explaining these concepts of the gospel, God's righteousness, his power for salvation, faith, and how they all, they all relate to one another, he's going to explain our salvation to us, and, and he's going to set the groundwork for the rest of the book in a lot of ways. You're not going to understand the rest of the book of Romans if you don't first understand what Paul does in Romans 1 this morning. But he's also going to answer these questions of who lives and who dies. And not just right now, but in, in eternity. And on what merit does one experience one or the other? Our main text, as I said this morning, what we read, it's verses 8 to 17, but I'm going I'm to self-admittedly spend most of my time focusing on just two verses here. Two verses at the end, verses 16 and 17. And we'll, uh, we'll refer back to previous verses and see kind of how Paul is building into the things he's saying in 16 and 17. That's essentially the logic of the text. Anyways, I think the, the kind of weight and depth of verses 16 and 17, they really help explain why he's saying what he's saying in 8 through 15. And so we'll make, we'll make mention and, and draw those connections throughout. But, but the meat of this section and really this chapter... <laughs> is really in these two verses. And so in the spirit of setting ourselves up well for the rest of the book, we're going to spend most of our time here. Here's kind of our main uh, idea or, or statement to think about this morning. This is the main thing that I want to prove to you from the text. And it's going to sound simple and it may sound basic, uh, but, but I promise you that we will see the depth and the complexity and the beauty of it this morning. It's just simply this. God is justifying a people for himself who believe him. And this is what that means for us this morning. Okay, hear me now. If God really justifies people by faith, this is what that means. That you can continue to trust him forever. God is justifying a people for himself who, who believe him and who will continue to trust him forever. This is what we get in the message of the gospel. This is what Paul's going to argue for, and it's how he begins uh, to set up all the rest of the arguments he's going to make in the book of Romans. I think we'll see the statement proven by kind of the three main points or movements of his thought that he makes in verses 16 and 17. So point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, or statement number one here, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, this statement is significant for two reasons, or maybe we could say two contexts in which Paul makes this statement. First, if you look back to verse 14, Paul says that he is obligated in his ministry to both wise and foolish. <laughs> this theme of, uh, of, the, of the wise and the foolish, it's a significant one throughout the Bible that we don't really have the time to dive deeply into this morning, but, but Scripture repeatedly kind of sets up this dichotomy between wisdom and foolishness, Right? And the purpose oftentimes is sort of to, to flip those two things on their heads. In other words, what, what the world and we by our nature really would, would often consider wise, the Bible would talk of as foolishness. And vice versa, what the Bible often portrays as wise or wisdom, our natural inclination would be looked down on that as silly 
or his foolishness. The penultimate example of this, of course, is, is the cross where a perfect man hung naked on a cross to die for the sins of all men. And oh, by the way, that perfect man was also the holy God who was the instrument by which all things were created. And the people he died to save were the very ones who rebelled against him in the first place and are now the ones beating, mocking, torture, torturing, and brutally murdering him. Make it make sense. That's, that's our way of thinking about this. But the Bible, it not only holds this up as sort of the uh, climactic positive event in the, in the grand storyline, it also says, says things like, whoever thinks they're wise in this world should become a fool. Because it's the only way that they can actually be wise, because the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. In, in other words, if you're smart in this world and how you think about things like God and humanity and salvation, you need to become foolish to the world because it's then and only then that you can really come to know God. And so there's, there's intellectual reasons that one might be ashamed of the gospel because the, the world doesn't agree with it. They, they, don't, they don't believe it. They look at the message of the cross and they, they, they spit on it. <laughs> what kind of God would die on a cross? What do I need saving from that someone would have to to die for me. That's the logic of the world, and to them the cross makes no sense. This whole, whole idea, it, it doesn't just manifest, manifest itself intellectually for Paul. There's also physical consequences of his allegiance to the gospel as well. He describes these as such numerous times. One of them is, is in 2 Corinthians 11, kind of a famous passage that we've all heard where uh, this man, Paul, who's writing to us in Romans here, he talks about how he's been beaten with lashes, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, threatened by his own people. And on and on and on the list goes, all for the sake of the gospel. Yet he says of all of this in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, yes, in his resurrection, but also in his sufferings. I want this, he says. And, and why does he want it? Well, it's not just because he's some kind of, you know, sicko who just, who just likes and enjoys terrible things happening to him. No, it's because he agrees with us that there's, there's far more to life than just this life. There's a life to come. And that life to come, it's far better and far more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And so he says, I'm not going to live primarily for this life. Rather, I'm going to live for that one. Foolishness to the world. Wisdom to God. And ultimately, the cross is what makes sense of all of it. Uh, we could illustrate it like this. I have a friend, he's, uh, he, he's a little bit older than me. His boys are becoming teenagers now. Um, and as, as teenagers, they're kind of starting to, you know, come into their own a little bit. At least they think so. Uh, they're, starting to, they're starting to notice the ladies around. Uh, they're starting to do things like, like take showers more and wear deodorant. Um, their wardrobe, it's kind of taking a step up, right? All, all this stuff, the one in particular, the middle one, he's kind of, taking it the most serious at this point, I would say. Um, I saw a picture of this dude on the first day of school. Mind you, uh, he's homeschooled, okay? So first day of homeschool group, and he, he is all swagged out. I mean, he, he's walking around in, in the Jordan shoes. He's got the Jordan jersey on. He's got the black fitted jeans on. He's got, got the, you know, the, the ice around his neck, you know what I mean? He's got the chain game going. Uh, and, and the funny thing about all this, it's not just the reality of what's happening. Uh, what I hear from his dad on the other side 
is it's not just that he's starting to kind of rock some style a little bit, right? Uh, he's also starting to now make fun of his dad for his lack of it. <laughs> Even though dad, right, used to wear all the same stuff and rock with all the same swag, he doesn't anymore. Now his, his 12 to 13-year-old son, who's just starting to get into it, he, he's, he's poking at him for not being about it like he is now. Dad's not wearing the Jordans. He's just like wearing some, you know, Under Armors. <laughs> he's not wearing the, the expensive jersey. He's just wearing a, he's just wearing a t-shirt. And, and what's happening is this. It's that his dad has learned some things about life between now and when he was 13, right? That there's much more meaningful things in life to spend your time and your money and your, your resources on than just what you wear and how you look. There's more to life than that. His time and his money and his attention, they're no longer just going to, to these vain things for himself. They're going to, uh, to things like his church or supporting his wife or supporting his kids, developing friendships with people, right? All things that are much more important. Life over time, it's, it's given him perspective and recognition that there are deeper and more meaningful, more important things to be concerned with. And it's, it's actually a sign of his maturity that he's no longer as concerned with these lesser vain things of life like he used to be. But notice the dynamic. <laughs> that, that with that change in perspective and way of doing life comes the mocking from the little kid who all he can see is the small and vain and little things in the grand scheme of it all. He's the one mocking the person who isn't living as glorious and, and as fabulous now, but who really is after something far more meaningful and valuable in the long run. And this is exactly what the gospel does to us. It, it gives us something far more meaningful than, than anything that this world has to offer. It gives us salvation. It gives us eternal life freely, not by anything that we have to do, simply by believing in Christ. Something in the grand scheme of it all that it, it's far more valuable than anything that the world could give us. And it's the immensity of this treasure that we possess in the gospel that makes the foolishness of the world pale in comparison to the glory that's to come. And so, so be encouraged, like Paul, not to be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it in a world that has, it has no grid for the gospel and the realities of the life to come that would call you silly for your allegiance to it, whatever that looks like. Understand it for the treasure that it is. Have the perspective of the Bible. Don't store up these treasures here. Treasure the gospel of Christ and the beauty of the cross. But, but also, also, recognize the warning that's here for all of us and our own hearts here as well. This is one of those moments where I think we, we so easily look outward and we, we apply this idea to, uh, to those people out there without ever stopping to consider how it may be true of us. Because the truth of the matter is that no matter how long we've, we've been in Christ, we all still struggle with vestiges of our sinful selves that, that oftentimes can creep in and they cloud our thinking on these issues and they can at times cause us to look at the gospel and deep down think this, it's foolish. <laughs> Surely I cannot be saved by just believing the gospel. Surely God demands something of me. No matter how small, there has to be something that I contribute to my salvation. Surely I need to pay God back if I take that free gift of salvation. Surely God does not demand 
every part of my life be lived in allegiance to him. Surely God does not really mean that when he talks about suffering for the gospel. Surely God's going to take that sin away from me. Surely if God were good, he wouldn't let me go through this struggle. These are all things that if we're honest, we all still think and feel at various moments in life. And so the warning would be this. It's that we need to have, we need to have a healthy distrust <laughs> of ourselves and the things that come so naturally to us. The things that, that feel natural to us and that make perfect sense in our minds. We have, to bring, we have to bring all of these things to the Word of God. And we have to search the Scriptures. And we have to be willing to let the Bible tell us when we're wrong. Or even let us tell us when we're right, but maybe for the wrong reasons. This idea of wisdom and foolishness, it's not the only context that we find Paul speaking into here. He also says, I'm called to both Greek and non-Greek. He's essentially saying the same thing that he'll say many other places, which is, which is that the gospel is for all men, Jew and Gentile. And it's precisely because of the nature of that gospel and the nature of how salvation is brought about in God's sovereign plan that this is so important. We'll see soon how this is relevant this morning. Uh, because as Paul continues to write, he begins to explain now why he is not ashamed of the gospel despite all these circumstances. And, and the answer for him to that question is simply this. It's that the gospel is God's power for salvation. <laughs> this is statement number two in the flow of thought here. Uh, and you can write it down as the second point for our purposes. It's, it's just simply this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. <laughs> Let me say it again. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And this is, quite frankly, where we begin to take a deep dive into the theology of Romans this morning. First thing he says uh, as he begins to answer this question of why he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's that it's the gospel itself that's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. Uh, this, is, this is part of how people come to know Christ and be saved from their sin. It's that they actually, they actually have to hear the gospel, right? And we'll talk more about this idea theologically later in Romans, but, but we can, uh, for now, just observe that this theological truth, it's why we see Paul so ambitious about the preaching of the gospel here in Romans 1. That's why he says in verse 1 that he's been, he's been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why that's what we see him doing right here in our text in verse 9. He's, he's proclaiming the good news about God's Son. That's why we see these attitudes from Paul. Not, it's not just that he's not ashamed. In a positive sense, he also says that he's, he's eager to preach the gospel to them. He's obligated to preach the gospel to them. All of this is because it's the message of the gospel that saves sinners. This is supported by Paul's very next line where he says this, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. <laughs> and this little line here can be so easily skipped over, I think, but, it, but it's, a, it's a massive statement made by Paul here that has really huge implications for how you're going to understand the rest of Romans and, honestly, the rest of the New Testament, for that matter. But how you understand it here, it's actually first going to depend on how you understand your Old Testament. Um, you may or may not be aware of all the kind of debate around who the people of God really are, and, and if it's not just Jews, but also Gentiles as well, then, then is there still any advantage to being part of uh, ethnic Israel and God's plan for salvation? And, and this, this small little kind of seems like just a tack-on statement here, right? 
it really gets to the heart of all of that. To argue that Israel will somehow have um, some sort of special advantage or special treatment in eternity, it's really to miss what God's heart for Israel was all along. Because God's heart for Israel, it was never really about Israel to begin with. It was first about his own glory, but it was actually secondly about the nations. This doesn't mean that Israel, they're, they're excluded from God's redemptive plan, but it, it does mean that his heart in choosing them out of all the other nations would be so that they would be a conduit of God's grace to all the other nations as well. Consider with me just quickly the Abrahamic covenant where God, he, he promises to make Israel into a nation. This is the first time we kind of see the idea of the nation of Israel coming about. Um, and, and you'll remember there that part of the promise to Abraham is that he's going to, he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to bless them, uh, him. He's going to make his name great. But <laughs> remember what comes right after that. And you will be a blessing to the nations. And so right there, and inherent to the promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation is already this idea that through that nation he would be a blessing to the nations. This is how he can say it a little differently in, in Genesis 17. Now after Abraham has been credited with righteousness based on his faith in the Messiah, you all remember that? that he's going to be the father of many nations now. Because remember, God's not interested in saving a people who will become Israelites. <laughs> He's saving a people who believe him. And he will save them the same way he saved Abraham, not by being a Jew, by their faith in Christ. And so from the beginning, we see that there's, there's already this outward trajectory that God has in mind far more than just Israel. From the beginning of his redemptive plan, he has in mind the nations. And Israel is significant in the story because they'll be the means by which he blesses not just Israel, but everyone who comes to faith in the Messiah. But we can get a little bit more, more specific even than that. How, how exactly is Israel the conduit of God's salvation to the nations? And we, we, could, say, we could say a lot here <laughs> that we won't because we don't have time for. But one major way, of course, is that the, the, the Messiah himself, he's going to come from Israel through the tribe of Judah, but also we, we, we would want to highlight here specifically that, that Israel is entrusted with the Holy Scriptures. Israel is the people who are tasked with both, both writing and with preserving and with passing down the Word of God. And, and why is that significant? Because in God's Word is the Gospel of God, <laughs> which Paul has just said is God's power for salvation. And so the power for salvation, it's not, it's not being a part of Israel. It's the gospel that God has preserved through Israel. You can't be saved if you can't hear the gospel, and you can't hear the gospel if God doesn't give us his word, and you can't receive his word if there's not a people to write it and to collect it and teach it and preserve it and pass it down. And all of this was done through Israel. Paul, Paul will make this uh, clear later, too, after spending time for a few chapters arguing that not just Israel is saved, but all those who have faith, he raises the question, what, what, good, of it, uh, what good is it then to even be of Israel? And, and the first thing he says there, Romans 3 verse 2, is that they were entrusted with the very words of God. They had the word of God. They, they had the gospel story, God's power for salvation. And it was, it was through them that this word would be preserved and developed across history so that all men, all men, not just Jew, all men would be able to hear and come to faith in Christ. 
As we've said this morning, God is justifying for himself a people who will, who will believe him <laughs> and who will continue trusting him forever. And ultimately, this is made possible through the gospel, which is God's power for salvation. But now we need to know what that message is. <laughs> what that gospel is. In order to bring this all home, that's exactly where Paul goes next. Paul's last kind of kind of movement in these verses is right there in verse 17 where he now he now explains how the power of salvation is found in the gospel. Okay, you following me? And so he says he, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's it's God's power for salvation. And now he's going to explain how that's the case. What Paul says is this, he says, for in it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The statement that Paul makes, it's supported by his use of an Old Testament text, which is quoted at the end of this verse with these words, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a clear quotation from Habakkuk 2.4, and it's the text that uh, Paul, he leans on to make, make all the claims that he's making here about salvation in this text, and as he, as he sets up the rest of what he's going to say in Romans. Now, what's this mean? Well, it means that, that the meaning of these words quoted in Habakkuk 2.4, they're, they're guiding Paul's argument here. Understanding the meaning of Habakkuk 2.4, it's essential for understanding Paul in Romans 1.17, and so turn there with me if you would, because we're going to spend some time looking at this. Let me read Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 4, and then we'll make a few observations. Habakkuk 2, 2 to 4, he says, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Uh, there's, two, there's two, I think, main things to understand from what the author of Habakkuk is doing here that, that they help provide clarity for how Paul is using it. Uh, the first thing that we would want to point out is that these words in Habakkuk, they're in the context of, of an eschatological, or we could say, last days, end times hope of the Lord's return. Uh, verse 2-3, right there where we read it, it says plainly that the vision that the prophet is to write down is for an appointed time. And it says it testifies about the end. This vision that he goes on to present, uh, we see it has to do with the coming of the Messiah and the salvation of his people. You can see that mentioned specifically in verse 3-13, if you want to just flip there and, and see that. That's where you see that. And even though the Messiah, he's not mentioned directly here in verse 2-3, the future-looking nature of the vision that's talked about would suggest that this is referring to the same thing. Are you following me there? If you don't believe me, I would just point out that this is also how the author of Hebrews understands the text. Okay, so argue with him, because he quotes this in Hebrews 10.37, only he changes the wording a little bit, which reveals his interpretation 
uh, of these two verses, okay, again, the vision in 2.3 that testifies about the end and the Messiah coming in 3.13 actually being about the same thing. Notice how Habakkuk 2 says it. It says the vision is not yet for an appointed time. It, the vision, will come and not be late. Now in Hebrews 10, listen to how he quotes it. For yet in a very little while, the coming one. (laughs) Not the vision, the coming one, capitalized. The Messiah. He will come and not be late. And then it reads the same thing. But my righteous one will live by faith. And so understood properly and read in context, this vision that Habakkuk uh, speaks about here in chapter 2, it's the coming of the Messiah in the last days or at the appointed time. But, but not only this, this coming of the Messiah at the appointed time, it's going to involve both the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of those who have faith. And this is the drama in Habakkuk 2 and the significance of the words, the righteous shall live by faith. There's this juxtaposition between two people in verse 4. Look with me. It's the one who has the ego, the one who's inflated and who will experience judgment, and then the righteous one who does not experience that judgment, but rather who lives. And remember now, this is all ultimately about this future event when the Messiah comes back. That's the vision. And what Habakkuk is saying here is that when that event takes place, there are some who will be judged and there are others who will live. And so what Habakkuk is worried about then, it's not just how you live and get through the current crisis of the day. What Habakkuk is ultimately concerned about is how do you have life when the Messiah comes to save and to judge. On that day, when the Messiah brings salvation and judgment, how will you have life then? You're going to get one or, the, one or the other. That's the picture, right? So how do you get life and not death? That's ultimately what Habakkuk is getting at here, and that's what he wants to answer. And these things, of course, they're not disconnected. Because the way that you can have life then is the same way that you should live now. It's by faith. <laughs> faith in the coming Messiah who brings salvation to his people. The righteous will live by faith. They'll live by faith both now and have life at that coming appointed time by faith in the Messiah. But this itself leads us into something I think even deeper here because if this, if this event of the Messiah's coming in this way that the others are talking about could and, and likely will take place after his lifetime, why is the Lord directing his attention to it? And why, why is he writing about it? Why would it be relevant for the author, for Habakkuk, and the people in his time if this whole thing isn't even going to happen until the last days, by which time they will be all, they'll all be long gone? And the only possible explanation for that is the reality and the hope of a resurrection from the dead and an eternal life to follow. Are you with me this morning? If we're saying that Habakkuk is talking about a hope for a life related to an event that that from his perspective, it may come long after he is dead and gone, what sense does that make unless inherent to that vision is the hope for a resurrection from the dead and an eternal life to follow? There's no life by faith for Habakkuk if that life comes when the Messiah comes. And if the Messiah comes after he's dead, and if there's no resurrection from the dead, 
How can there be life if he's already dead? And so for Habakkuk, there must be a life after life. And what he's saying here very specifically is that that life is granted by faith. As we've already mentioned this morning, there's much more in view here than just life and death here. The Bible has in mind another kind of life that's, that's available. It's an eternal life that is founded upon the infinite nature of God's own, own past and present. God's, God's eternal past and future, it's the basis for the hope of God's people who get to dwell with him, also living into an eternal future. And so the, the theology of Habakkuk is that there, there's not just life in this life, there's, there's life in a life to come. And the proud and puffed up ones, they don't live the life to come, the righteous do. And the righteous live not by works or as a byproduct of their own righteousness, but by their faith. And they don't just have general faith, they have faith specifically in the coming of the Messiah at his appointed time, both to save them and to judge the unrighteous. That's what this text says. Can I just ask again, are you, are you, are you with me on this this morning? Everybody got that. I need, you, I need you with me. I know there's a lot, but I want you with me on this. We've got we to gotta be together here. <laughs> uh, you might remember the scene in uh, Remember the Titans, uh, where it's kind of like a last-ditch effort to uh, get his team all on the same page, right? Coach Boone, he wakes his team up. They go on this early morning run. I'm like, what the heck's going on? They run, and they get to the... Uh, they get to the ground where the, the Battle of Gettysburg took place. And uh, in that scene, once they get there, they stop, and he turns around, and he, sa- he says this to the team. He says, if we don't come together right now <laughs> on this hollow ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. And that's, that's how this feels for me right now. <laughs> if we don't come together as a group right now, this could send us completely off the rails, and it would be all my fault, I know. In case I lost anyone, let me just do this. Let me summarize Habakkuk 2, 2 to 4 in just four quick points, just quickly. Number one, Habakkuk is clearly thinking outside of his own time. The vision is about the end. Number two, the vision that Habakkuk is referring to is when the Messiah comes to bring salvation and judgment. Number three, the way you will experience life and not death on that day is by faith. And four, will that life last temporarily? (laughs) No. It will last forever. So back to Romans 1, the reason that it's so important, again, to spend so much time here is that is that just like all of you, Paul, he, he's a really good reader of his Old Testament. This is exactly how Paul understands Habakkuk 2.4, and that's exactly how he uses it here in Romans 1. This understanding of Habakkuk, it's, it's, it's the leg that he stands on to make all the claims that he's making here. And notice how he even kind of sets up this, this same, the same juxtaposition between the righteous who live here in verse 17 and then the wrath of God that's brought down on everyone else in verse 18. Not only is the righteousness of God being revealed, but if we, if we read just one more verse over, we see that the wrath of God is also going to be revealed. And then it gives us this huge long list and description of the, the unrighteousness that brings about God's wrath. And so, 
in the midst of this great drama, how do you avoid the wrath of eternal separation from God and instead experience the salvation of eternal life with God? It's the same exact theology that Habakkuk has already laid out. It's by being righteous. And how is it that you can be found righteous? It is by faith. This begins to now get at the heart of this question, well, what is, what is the righteousness of God? What is it? What is the, the power of the gospel for salvation that, that is actually revealed when it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith? There's really two options on how we could answer this. One would just be to simply say it's, it's talking about an attribute of God, so in the sense that God himself is righteous, which is certainly true. The second would be uh, to talk about it in the sense of how God makes his people righteous before him. The way that God makes his people just in his sight, how he saves them. We're not going to take time to explain this in depth, but here we, we want to say that Paul's talking about the righteousness of God in the second sense. He's referring to how God, how he, how he justifies his people. And so the righteousness of God that's revealed is referring to how he, how he makes his people right with him. And now the question, well, well how does he do that? <laughs> In other words, that's, that's what is revealed in the message of the gospel, but, but how? How does that, how does that happen? And, and pages have been spilled across church history over how, to, how the Lord really justifies his people, but, but Paul's very, very, very clear on how this happens. He says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or, or faith for faith, some translations might say. And so, Friends, unlike the Roman Catholics or, or even, uh, even this new perspective of Paul that you may have heard of or, or encountered in some form, we don't believe that God's grace merely enables us to be righteous in our own right and be just before him based on a righteousness of our own. We don't agree with any system of theology or interpretation that would in any way imply that we have to develop a righteousness of our own to any degree. Friends, what the Bible teaches is that the righteousness that God demands of us, he freely gives to us by faith. (laughs) It doesn't have to be achieved. It doesn't have to be developed on your own. It's not something that you have to bring to God to be saved. It's something he gives you when you're united to Christ by faith. In fact, we believe it. We believe it even stronger than that. We don't only think that that's, that's not how it works. We don't even think that's possible to begin with. We don't think that sinful human beings are able to be, to be righteous in our own right. We don't think that what we need is just the grace of the Lord to help make our sinful selves into something better than what we were. Just keep reading the rest of Romans 1. That, that is what humanity is capable of. It, it's not good. <laughs> we need a righteousness that's completely different than anything that we can come up with. And we need it to be given freely because we can't perform it and we can't earn it. And that's exactly what the gospel offers. The gospel doesn't offer us help to be better people. The gospel says nothing you can muster up is acceptable to God. It says the only thing acceptable to him is the righteousness of Christ. And then, and then it gives you the righteousness of Christ himself when you're united to him by faith. So that when the Lord sees you, he, he sees the righteousness of Christ as if it belonged to you in the exact same way and to the exact same degree that it belongs to him. That's how the grace of God works. And friends, you you cannot be saved if you don't first recognize and believe this reality about yourselves and salvation. We can't do it. We can't do any of it. 
We need a God who does it for us and who offers it to us freely. Because it's the only way that we can be made right with him, and that's exactly what he does through his son, Jesus Christ. Calvin, Calvin says it like this. He says, he says, We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ unless we first assuredly know that we have no righteousness of our own. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, Nothing can damn a man but his own righteousness. Nothing can save him but the righteousness of Christ. Martin Luther, let Christ's righteousness and grace, not yours, be your refuge. Friends, the way that God makes sinners right with him is that he counts us in righteous in his sight, and all we have to do is believe. And again, is this not complete and utter foolishness to the world and to our our sinful hearts? (laughs) We love something because it's lovable, yet in the gospel, God chooses the unlovable thing, and then he makes it lovable to himself. We think in order to attain something, we have to, to, to have something attributed to us, we have to work for it. We have to practice it over and over and over again until it's true of us. But in the gospel, God declares it on us and grants it to us on the merits of another. But friends, this reality that it's all, it's all given freely by faith, it's not just a reality for us that is, that is isolated to one moment in time and then it somehow changes afterwards. Don't miss the rest of what he says here. It's not just revealed from faith, it's to faith. This righteousness is not just revealed in the moment that you, that you come to saving faith in Christ. It continues to be revealed in you, not by you now working to maintain your status before God, and not by you now working to somehow pay him back for the free gift of salvation that he gave you. It's revealed from faith to faith. From the moment that you came to faith for the very first time and were united to Christ and were justified in God's sight and inherited an eternal life with God into an eternal life of belief and trust in God. That's what your salvation is on both sides. It's, it's a life of faith in Jesus Christ. In just the same way that you, you didn't have to come up with a righteousness of your own in order to be saved, you don't now have to develop one on your own in order to stay saved. All that you will ever have is the righteousness of Christ by faith. Be careful with your language, Christian, about living righteously or about pursuing righteousness. What do you mean by that? If by that language you mean now walking in the righteousness of Christ that's been freely given to you, then amen. (laughs) But if you mean now being righteous in your own right and possessing a righteousness of your own, apart from Christ, then please come back to the truth of the gospel. Let me say this too. Make sure you're processing your struggles with sin within this framework as well. The moment that you you detach your fight for obedience and victory over sin in your life from the free grace of the gospel, you are contradicting who and what you are in Christ. And any attempt at piety that does not, does not first start with a wholehearted trust and belief in the fact that you, you've, you've been justified freely by his grace, that you've already been counted as righteous because you, you possess the righteousness of Christ in union with him, any attempt at anything good that does not start with wholehearted faith in that reality about yourself, it is working counter 
to the gospel. We too often struggle to believe this, do we not? Because if we're really honest, deep down when we get, when we kind of get into the nitty gritty of life, what the gospel looks like is foolishness. We can't believe that with, with, with how bad we are, how much we still struggle and how, how slowly we mature at times, that with all my mess, that the gospel could really be that free. That God could really be that gracious to just, to just give it to us and not expect me to contribute anything to it at any point. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean? We can talk about the theology of it till we're blue in the face, but tell me, tell me, how does this help me this afternoon? <laughs> how does it help me tomorrow? Friends, what it means is that we don't just need the gospel as an unbeliever who needs to believe it for the first time. What this means is that we need the gospel every single second. We never, ever for a second in this life get past the need for this message. <laughs> Not even for a moment. And, and this, this message, with all its depth and complexity and beauty, it's, it's just as much for the, the, the sweet little 90-year-old lady who's been walking with Jesus for over 70 years, who knows every page of her Bible inside and out by now. It is, it is, no, it is no less for her than it is for the person who doesn't know Christ and needs to come to faith in him for the very first time. It's just as much for both of them. It's just as much for the person who's been, who's been working their entire life to get, make God love them, who has labored their entire life analyzing every square inch of their life to be found without fault in order to, to make themselves into something that God could love. It is just as much for that person as the person who, who they, they, they believed in the free grace of the gospel. They were saved from their sin and, and they believe God loves them in Christ, but who has now lived their entire adult life doing all of the same things to keep his love for them. It's just as much for both of them. It's just as much for the, the self-righteous Christian who's only concerned with the outward appearance of obedience, yet they have a bad heart towards God because they, they don't understand the depths of his grace and they, don't, they, they can't see the depths of their sin. It's just as much for them as it is for another Christian who in a mere moment ruins their marriage, destroys their family, destroys their reputation. They use words that they, they don't mean to hurt per people they love. They compromise their integrity, forced to leave a job. They do the same sin over and over and over again. No matter how hard they, they try to stop, they can't. Who, who crosses a line they never thought they'd cross. And because of everything they've done, all they can feel is guilt and shame and despair. The message is just as much needed for all of them. Because what all of them first need to do before anything else, hear me now, what they all need to do before anything else is the same thing. Believe. They have to believe the gospel. They have to believe that the gospel is true for them. 
that yes, yes, God demands absolute perfection in his sight, but that God sent his son to keep that standard for us. That all you have to do to be right with God is to believe him and be counted righteous in his sight. And friends, this doesn't ever change on this side of salvation. You do not and you cannot now develop a righteousness of your own that you'll, that you'll one day present to God in heaven. That doesn't happen at any point in time, and it's sinful to, to even try or think you should. All any of us will ever have on that day is our sin and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you'll be ushered into paradise, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ did for you. And in the same vein, you won't be turned away because of anything you've done. You will be ushered in on the merits of Christ. The way you go on is the way that you got in. It is from faith to faith. And if you can believe that God has, that he saved you, not because of anything that you've done, but actually in spite of yourself, if you can just believe that he saves you with a free gift, that all you have to do is believe in him, then you can continue to trust him forever. That is the righteousness of God revealed. That is, the, that is the difference between life and death. That is the gospel. The righteous live by faith. It is by faith. And faith alone. We've said a lot this morning. <laughs> said a lot. But it's important. Because there, there's nothing less at stake in this than life or death. And because we all, no matter who we are, where we're at in life, what we all need more than anything else is to, is to just be reminded of the gospel and to be encouraged to believe it. There's nothing in life with higher stakes. There's nothing less at stake in the gospel than life or death. Well, it's not just life and death here in a moment. It's forever. And we never grow past needing the reminder that God's salvation and his righteousness, it is, it is given to us freely on the merits of Christ by faith. And so, and so what do we do? We just, we just keep preaching the same message. <laughs> we keep preaching it to ourselves. We keep preaching it to our, to our friends. We keep preaching it to our families. And we don't care what the world says. We don't care what other, what other churches might say. Don't care if it sounds silly, we're not ashamed of it. We keep preaching the same message because we know that it brings a treasure more valuable than anything this life has to offer. Because we know that only in the gospel is the power for salvation. Because we know that it's where God's righteousness is revealed. It's the, it's the message about his son, about who he is, and about, about what he's done to save sinners. Because that righteousness is only revealed by faith. And we live every day by faith in the promise of the gospel. We don't live out of this obligation to make God happy with us by anything that we, that we do or don't do. We don't live out of fear that God is going to be displeased with us. <laughs> we don't live out of fear that the Lord wants more from us. We don't live trying to contribute anything of ourselves to the equation. We accept God for who he is, the giver of the gift. <laughs> we just accept him for what he's done. We keep trusting him, not just now and not just tomorrow, but forever. Amen? Let me pray.
And we'll move to communion. Father, God, we <laughs> thank you for your, your sovereignty, Lord. We, we thank you for your, your plan of salvation. God, we thank you for the way that you um, have given us your word and the message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your power for salvation is not dependent on us in any way. That it's not in us, it's not in us doing anything, it's not in us making us holy and clean and righteous before you, Lord. We thank you that everything you demand, you give us. We thank you that you accept what you give us, Lord. And help us, Lord, help us, help us, moment by moment, to live by faith. God, we're, we're, we still struggle with sin. We struggle to believe. There's so many natural inclinations of the heart that would draw us away from the truth of the gospel, but help us to just believe it. Help everything we do and every, every, every way we try to relate to you, help that to be an overflow of belief and trust in that truth. God, thank you for your word. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.